0: Welcome to the Wisdom Rising podcast. I'm your host, Lama Sultrama Alione, And my goal with this podcast is really to open your own wisdom, to have your own wisdom rising, either through the meditations that I lead or introduce you to, or to the people that I interview that bring wisdom with them in their own voice, in their own traditions. So we look forward to raising our wisdom together on the Wisdom Rising podcast. And I'm so happy to share this with you. And greetings, everyone. I hope you're all well. This morning, I took a walk, about a mile and a half walk in my neighborhood and Sunday morning. So more people were out walking their dogs. And beautiful morning here, as it often is. And it was a feeling of peace. But not everyone is in that kind of situation. And if you're not, you can become a messenger of peace. Somebody who brings a feeling of peace where there isn't peace, a harbinger of peace. So I thought I would answer some questions. People send in questions. I'll look at them here. Okay, D. Edwards. Can you speak how we hold or handle sexual abuse uh, allegations that continue to come out so frequently about lamas and leaders in the Tibetan traditions? As an abuse survivor, I need guidance as I feel the urge to turn away from these traditions. I understand that, Dee. It it just keeps coming out. And with people that you think, oh, that's not, not them, <laughs> not him. So... I'll say what I say when the Shambhala abuse came out, which is that the Dharma is yours. It doesn't belong to those teachers who are misusing it. And if they are misusing it for power over others or for sexual abuse, that doesn't mean that the Dharma is bad. It means that they are, and they're misusing it. So know that the dharma is perfect. It's the people that practice it that may be imperfect and that it doesn't belong to them, it belongs to the practitioners of it. And also, I think it's important to try to associate with a sangha that has a sexual abuse policy or sexual harassment policy as part of what people who teach through that center, through that community, need to sign before they can teach. I believe that Tara Mandala was the first that had such a thing in the Tibetan tradition. It was around, uh, and of course, I've tried to make Tara Mandala a safe place for women in particular who have not had safe places to practice. And still, it came into Tara Mandala There were complaints about some visiting teachers. And so what we did at the time, Katie, who's my daughter-in-law now, was the executive director and David was alive. So actually it must've been 2009 or or maybe early 2010. In any case, we met with the llamas and kembos that were there at that time. I said to Katie, draw up a sexual harassment policy quick i wanted today and we had a meeting with them and it was awkward because culturally to approach your sort of superiors you know that that these lamas is supposed to be over you or better than you in some way and then ask them to sign such a thing it's not really culturally appropriate and but I didn't care. And I said that. I said, you know, that the purpose of founding Tara Mandala was to support the sacred feminine and, of course, the masculine as well. But because the feminine had been and has been not honored and often abused, I wanted to honor it. And I also feel the feminine is extremely important in the world. As a presence and also the fierce feminine which i wrote about in my last book wisdom rising so we had that meeting asked them to sign that and still i don't know a couple of years later we had some men on staff that were problematic it continues to come up even though tar really should be a place that it doesn't come up but it's a it's in the it's in the world. And so we just have to keep confronting it. And I hope D that you can find a safe place to practice. And if if it's not that you feel free to bring that up and that those allegations are taken seriously. So I guess your question is how to handle it, report it when it happens, if it's not taken seriously when you report it, then I would say that's not a suitable place for you to be. Yeah, so I hope that's a, an answer to that question. There's another, I guess, somewhat connected question from Alyssa Apple. She's the head of psychiatry at UCSF in San Francisco, University of California, San Francisco and she's asking how to be a feminist leader within a male-dominated Buddhist world. Good question. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've had to deal with for a long time. My awakening to a feminist point of view came during the writing of my first book, Women of Wisdom, and I wrote that book because of the death of my daughter, Kiara and the longing for the stories of women. And so I started reading about women. I realized I, I needed their stories. I didn't have them as a mother who'd lost a child. I did have this story from the Buddha where a mother came to him in, in tears and distraught from the death of a child. And he did something I thought was really wise, which was to say to her, go to all the houses around here and ask for a mustard seed from every house where they have not experienced death of a loved one. And so by doing that, she heard the stories of so many others who had lost loved ones. And her empathy grew as well as her awareness that she wasn't alone in her grief. And this is what I felt helped me when my daughter Kiara died and particularly when my husband David died. And we had someone in our sangha, in our close sangha this week, whose husband suddenly died. Not old, not sick. He didn't think he had a massive heart attack very similar to when my husband died at the age of 54. There was no pre-knowledge that he could die. Of course, we all could die, but he wasn't sick that we knew of. And suddenly, in the middle of the night, he was gone. And what helped me in that time was a practice of tonglen. Tonglen is something I've done here before, and it's means taking and sending and you breathe in the suffering of others and you breathe out love and compassion, which to me at the time when I was grieving seemed impossible. I cannot take any more grief. I can barely survive with what I'm coping with every day, every moment of every day. But I decided to try it. It was in a song that we sing every night, or at that time we were singing every night at Tara Mandala, taking happiness, and sadness onto the path. And so in that practice, you breathe in the suffering of others and you breathe out relief, love and compassion. You're actually willing to receive the suffering of others. And then you flash on emptiness at that moment, the breath turns around and then offer out relief. And I thought I couldn't do it, but oddly what happened to me, and this was, I didn't try this until Oh, no, do know, it was quite a while into the grief, at least six months. What happened was my grief began to ease. It was better. The experience of isolation that you have with grief, of aloneness and of kind of being in a pressure cooker is so extreme that being willing to empathize and take on. And I, I did the meditation specifically in the beginning with people who had lost their partners, their beloved, and then expanded it to all kinds of death and loss. And it was so paradoxical that being willing to take on the grief of others relieved my own grief. It was literally pretty much the only thing that helps me at that time. But in any case, I was answering a question about feminism. (laughs) And uh, so the problem is that Buddhism is patriarchal, even though, of course, we have Tara, we have the Dakinis, we have stories of women practitioners and teachers in the Tibetan tradition and in all, all traditions of Buddhism, however, they're very small in number, there's not many. And so it was very difficult for me when I began to speak about the importance of the feminine and the feminine voice, and there should be an equal number of teachers and of women at the table where the decisions are being made for all of us. And I was called too feminist and told that that was dualistic. Of course, there wasn't any mention of 2,500 years of patriarchy and of women not being allowed to have full ordination, for example, in Tibet, et cetera, that that was dualistic, but I was being dualistic. And it was a big thing in my life. I had to make a decision with my teacher, who is very dear to me, of if I was going to sort of shut up, <laughs> stop talking about this, or not. While I was making that decision, I decided to go into retreat, because it was such a big decision. And I wanted to get away from all influences to make that decision. And in, in the time I was in retreat, it was 2001, 9-11 happened, the attacks. and my husband came down to my cabin and told me about it usually he would never come but he came he, he felt i should know and my reaction was where's the feminine in the lives of these men that did that of course that's not the only factor in it a very complex situation but that was what i thought about and also in the american response where's the feminine and i committed after that happened. I practiced for 49 days for the deceased who fell out of that building or burned up in it. And there were so many mind streams out there with no support. And I was so happy to be in retreat and be able to practice for them. But in any case, I recommitted to the feminine and I said, I'm not gonna stop talking about this. I do feel it's, it's important for the survival of the planet, of our species, that this comes forward. And remember, it's been women who have dominated the ecological and environmental movements. It's been the feminine voice speaking for the earth, not entirely, I don't mean to say that, but proportionately, it's been women. Look at Greta, she's a young woman, And so we need this voice, not only in that arena, but in every arena. And so I decided not to be quiet and to keep talking about this. And so others have done this. I'm I'm certainly not the only one, the Buddhist tradition and, and other religious traditions. I think religion is a very important place for this to happen because it's the spiritual values that have created, for example, the ecological crisis we're in, the idea that the earth and animals are here for us to use and abuse if we want to, that's in the practices of many religions. And so changing the spiritual view, changing within a religion, can make a big impact. And of course, outside of that as well. So I guess the answer to that question, how to be a feminist leader is to empower women and to also keep the values that have been identified as feminist. And one of them is a care for the earth, a care for mother earth. And so don't abandon those just because you become a Buddhist. Thank you, Alyssa, for that question. Okay, here's a question. Okay, so this is Michelle Sapinato. Is it ever possible for a particular practice to be adverse for one's nervous system? Yes, I think, I think it is possible that trauma can be triggered in, med- in meditation practice For example, mindfulness. This is something that's come up more recently that there can be a trauma response or trauma triggered in meditation. I haven't personally experienced that or I haven't had that happen with my students, but apparently it can happen. If you have trauma, I would suggest that you find a therapist, counselor, or a group where you can find support and that you practice meditation under the guidance of that therapist so they can help you to regulate that response and to figure out what kinds of meditations are good for you and what kinds might be triggering. With feeding your demons, for example, that that meditation that I teach, I tell people if they have trauma that causes them to dissociate from the body, which means to get a sense of spaciness, kind of leaving your body, which a lot of people that have trauma did during the traumatic experience or experiences. For example, in sexual abuse, usually what children do is dissociate from their bodies while it's happening, because otherwise they can't tolerate it. And so what I say in feeding your demons is rather than dissolve your body into nectar as we normally do, I say, keep your body, keep the presence of your body, feel your strength in the body and magically manifest an infinite quantity of nectar that feeds the demon. So that kind of adjustment can be made if you have a traumatic history the meditations might be changed a little bit. But don't feel, oh, I better not meditate. Find a, a way to get guidance and support. And certainly meditation will be beneficial for you. So just do it with care and with support. Let's see. As I was taught, wisdom and awakening begin with our body. This is Matilda Amorim in Porto, Portugal yet the practices we do are very static. Is physical movement important on the path to enlightenment? So we say body, speech, and mind. In Tibetan tradition, any meditation, you're working with body, speech, and mind, or most. And so the body part is often in hand movements, they're called mudras, where we bring in the body, which is still pretty static, right? It's just the hands but there's also walking meditation that is movement and there's also dance like dance of the vajra which is an amazing dance tradition that was begun by Chögyal Namke Norbu Rinpoche and you can look up Sokchen community vajra dance and find courses in that it's done on a mandala with equal numbers of men and women who are dancing on the mandala, which represents the world. And also in the Tibetan tradition, there is yoga as part of it. It's usually taught as a more advanced practice in the Tibetan tradition, but that's also being taught openly in the Dzogchen community. So you can find it there, but it's true that most Buddhist practice is about sitting and not moving. And the reason for that is that we're working with our minds. And when we try to do too much, like move, we lose track of our minds. So it's simplifying the situation as much as possible, so that we can begin to come into a direct aware relationship with our minds, and then later can integrate it into movement. Yeah, it is often a sitting practice. So here's a, a question from Daniela in Romania. You mentioned that we shouldn't eat meat on Sagchen, which is the, the full moon day of the Buddha's birth, death and passing into oh, an enlightenment, the death, parinirvana, his enlightenment and birth, full moon. How is the view toward eating meat in Buddhism, especially since we don't live in conditions where meat has to be our primary food? Well, there's different views in different traditions and different teachers teach it differently. For example, in in Chinese Buddhism, there's pretty strict vegetarian code or most Buddhists are vegetarian. In Tibet, most Buddhists aren't because of the climate being such that it's freezing most of the year, and and there's not enough time in the year to have enough protein through non-meat sources. But there are still vegetarian people in Tibet and, and still think of it as a better choice. So what did the Buddha say? The Buddha was not a vegetarian himself, which many people don't know. The Buddha ate meat, If it was offered to him, remember he was a beggar. So whatever was offered, he ate it. He did say that you shouldn't eat meat that's killed for you. For example, you shouldn't be seeing a lobster thrown into that water for you. That it should go through three hands before you eat it so that there's nothing connected to you in eating that meat directly. And I know that you can say, well, if nobody bought the meat, then nobody would be killing it and it wouldn't be going through those three hands. So it's one of those things that can be argued for hours. Also aren't plants sentient beings. Now we know so much about plants that they really are feeling beings. So then what can we eat? And so the Buddha taught the middle way, which means not extreme in either direction. And so, that's generally the approach with Buddhism and eating meat There's a general idea that it's better not to because of the killing of sentient beings that's involved in it. However, if medically you need it or your environment or whatever, then it's not forbidden. So that's the answer to that question. And Tibet they will take certain days and not eat meat or certain months, like the Saga month, often Tibetans will take a vow to not eat meat during that month, or maybe once a month on full moon or, or something like that. Also, some llamas take a vow not to eat it more than once a day. You know, you don't have bacon for breakfast and then something for lunch and something, some other meat for dinner. These are really personal questions. And so there isn't a universal answer to that but thank you for the question i think it's something that a lot of people wonder about so uh, joseph i see your your question yes that is he's talking about d- deeper practice and body based issues that's why i really think it's it's important to work with a teacher if, if you're learning practice and meditation, and that's why at Tara Mandala, we have long-term programs like the Magyu, the mother lineage, and we have the Osal where you get a mentor, a spiritual mentor, called a Kalyanamitra, So you have somebody you can ask these things to and get support from. If you're going into deeper practice, and also blood, um, yes, there are the Geshema ma um, trainings, but also the Kenmos, those female Kenpos called Kenmos that are being trained in the Nyingma tradition. It's not only in Dharamsala and with the Galupas. In fact, we are inviting a Kenmo to come and live and teach at Taramandala At this point, we are working on, on that. So yes, there are those equivalents. It's beginning to happen, thank goodness. And there are many women teachers of Buddhism, not only Sharon Salzberg, there's, there's many. And especially in the West, there's more and more, but there's also some in Asia as well. So there's books about this that you can find. And also you can look it up on the internet if you want to have a woman teacher, it's, it's definitely possible. So I hope this was helpful to all of you today. And there are many deeper teachings on all of these questions that I answered. I couldn't go deeply into any of them, but I hope it was enough to have you feel like your question was answered. And I'm wishing you all a a beautiful week and lots of love to all of you, and may you all have a peaceful life, peaceful night if you're going to sleep, peaceful day if you're beginning your day now or you're in your day. And let's spread some peace today. Thanks, everyone. Lots of love. Thank you, everyone, for being with us for this Wisdom Rising podcast. May it benefit all beings. And I'd like to take a moment to thank The production team of Wisdom Rising, and also to let you know that if you would like further information on my work or the associated people who work with Tara Mandala, you can reach out to the Tara Mandala website, T-A-R-A-M-A-N-D-A-L-A dot O-R-G. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe.